0: Everybody, let's uh, let's spend a few minutes in God's Word. If you have your Bible, find the Gospel of Luke chapter fifteen. Luke chapter fifteen. We're going to look at probably, maybe, quite certainly, I don't know, the most well-known parable that Jesus told. Well-known, um, sort of even, even at somewhat level by unbelievers, um, or even the. It's the parable, parable of the prodigal son. So even that, prodigal, a prodigal son has that that phrase has become colloquial in our culture. Even if they've never even heard the the, the parable, the whole parable. But um, you know, uh, I think it's we call it the parable of the prodigal son. I think it it might be better described as just a parable of the lost son, or 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 even better. Lost Sons, the parable of the lost sons, uh, since it is a story of a man with two sons, uh, and both sons are highlighted. So it's really not just one of the sons in particular, the prodigal one that's highlighted here, um, but both of them are. So I think the parable the, uh, parable of the lost sons might be even a better title for it. This parable, which we find in Luke chapter 15, uh, is, is uh, this is told in Luke 15 as sort of a climax of three different parables that Jesus tells in this chapter um, in response to some scribes and Pharisees, how they were reacting toward Jesus. So if you look at the beginning of the chapter, like verses 1 and 2, it says, now the, the tax collectors and sinners we're all drawing near to hear Him, that is, to hear Jesus. Verse two says, "The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, "This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them." And then verse three tells us that he told these parables in response to that attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes. So he tells the, the parable of the lost sheep first where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and goes after the one lost sheep. And they follow that immediately with the parable of the lost coin, where a woman had 10, ten coins, lost one, and she swept her whole house just to find that one lost coin. And finally, he tells the parable of the lost sons. So you have lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. I think you, have, you lose some of the symmetry there, if you'd go with prodigal. <laughs> but uh, but uh, anyway, so the parable of the prodigal son, or lost sons, I think it's far and away the longest um, parable, of, certainly of those, of those three that I just mentioned, um, but maybe, maybe the longest one of all of them. I don't know. Um, but that's our focus tonight. We'll talk about the other two that I mentioned in due time. We're going to read it in just a second, but this parable, I want you to think about it as we read it. This parable has so much to teach us. It's well-known, the most well-known, for a a really good reason. Not only is it just a, a beautiful story, but it just has so much to teach you about the nature of God and the nature of our sin and the nature of grace, the nature of repentance. It just has so much To teach you about all of those things and probably even more things so why do I include that this parable here because we're thinking about parables this whole year and and I've chosen some that really seem to highlight the the front end the beginning of how we come into the kingdom how we come into to this walk with Christ and this 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 uh, becoming uh, part of his kingdom the 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 front end of that Um, and we know that, that that i I think this fits into that, that that vein right there. We know that this is talking about that one because Jesus said his parables were about the kingdom and and he, like I just said, Jesus is telling this parable right here because there were scribes and Pharisees that were grumbling about the fact that tax collectors and sinners were coming to him, and this is about how they come how somebody should come to him and um It is talking about how somebody should come to Jesus the first time. But as we read it, you'll see it it, without question has so much to teach us about just walking with Jesus, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus. So it's a word for me. It's a word for everybody. So that being said, Luke chapter 15, let's read the passage. Verse 11, we'll read through verse 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and a a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field and he These many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and is found. Let's pray. Lord, this, this, uh, these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and because of that, they are your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Inerrant, infallible, because they are. Uh, You are incapable of leading us astray or telling an untruth. Sufficient because you are gracious and have made known to us in these words all that is necessary for us to believe and know in order to be saved. Clear because, oh Lord Jesus, you're such a clear teacher. Authoritative because it's your word. Necessary to us because if you didn't tell us this, there's no way we could find it out. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth in what the Lord Jesus said here. Would you give us minds to understand it, hearts to embrace it, wills to obey it, give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, and give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the main point of this parable, as I've already sort of indicated, is about how different people come to Jesus and which one Jesus receives when they come, clearly uh, different approaches to him, like in the, in the preface, like why he told these three parables to begin with. There were differences in the way that tax collectors and sinners were coming to him and how he received them versus how the scribes and the Pharisees came and how he received them. But every every detail of this parable that we just read is instructive to us toward that main aim of this this parable. And I don't know of a better way to address what he says here in this in this parable, then simply to focus on each of the main three characters. Um, th- th- yeah, so we'll just take each one as Jesus presents them to us here. So first, if you're taking notes, we're going to think about the younger son. The younger son, or the prodigal son, um, who is, what would he be? He would be emblematic of the tax collectors and the sinners that were coming to Jesus. That, that's who he represents in this story, the younger son. And then, then we'll think about the father, who represents obviously in this story, represents God, represents Christ, represents the character of God and as he receives those who come to him. And then third, we're going to think about the older son who receives the focus of the end of the parable. All right, So let's, let's take a closer look and think first about how Jesus describes the younger son here. So the parable begins in verse 11, and it says the, in verse 11 that there was a man who had two sons, two sons, which again, I think this is, parable is popularly misnamed, parables about two sons, not just one, but in verse 12, Jesus focuses the attention first on the younger son who's come come down to us known as the prodigal son. And we'll look we'll look at all that Jesus tells us about about this this guy. Some the, there's a bit a, a thing or two about this guy that that we that won't make full sense to us or we won't, we won't feel the full significance of about this guy until we Also talk about the father, so we'll see him in just a minute. But just um, let's let's think first here. It it says in verse twelve that the younger son comes to his father and he says, "Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me." And it it moves immediately to the father's reply to that, which we're going to look at not now but in a minute. But just think about what the son is doing. What is that younger son doing when he comes to his father? And and asks for that, um, according to the law of that time. Obviously, the law of every time that was he's asking for his inheritance. Obviously, when the when the father died, he was going to receive that inheritance. Um, but according to the, and and if he if they had waited that because he's the younger son, he would have gotten one third of all that the father had. Okay, that's what he'd gotten if he waited till the father died. But it it wasn't actually against the law at that time technically to ask to receive a portion of uh, that portion from the father before he died. But two things need to be considered. One, if he asked for his portion of it before the father died, by law, it would reduce how much he would get. So he would would have gotten a third. He only gets two-ninths now of all that the father has. Okay, so it reduces how much he got. That's one thing. That just shows you how eager he was to get away. I'll take a cut. Just give it to me, right? Um, but two, here's the bigger thing that, that makes it such an offense right here. If he took it early, he could receive it. It would be less, and it would be in his possession now, but he would not be allowed to use any of it for himself or for his own advantage until the father died. Still technically the father's though it's in his possession, as long as the father's alive. And, and, and so... Uh, in effect, by asking his father for his inheritance early. And his father, at this point, knew the character of his son. Knowing his son's motives for asking, because why else would you ask for such a thing, even if it's technically not against the law? The, son is, the younger son is effectively telling his father that he wished his father were dead. Like, he's, the father knew that the son wanted not just to possess these things, but to spend it. And it says in verse 13 that the son, now having these, these possessions, the son gathered all that he had. That's what verse 13 says. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. And that language there of gathering all that he had, that language that was used there is, is, was the language of an, an accounting idea, meaning that he took all of that property and liquidated it. He turned it into cash, right? He sold it, turned it into cash, and it says he took that, in verse 13, far journey, and he squandered his property in reckless living, prodigal living is what he did. Prodigal, by the way, you may not have any idea what prodigal means. I don't really use that very much, but prodigal, prodigal just means spending money recklessly, prodigals, spending resources recklessly, wasteful, wastefully extravagant. Um, this is the direction that our sin often tries to, to push us. It's not the only direction that it pushes us. As we'll see in just a minute, the older son is certainly an exception to this, but this is certainly a prominent way. We just saw it in Romans chapter 1. Um 1 that we, we have a sinful tendency to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That we, we or as Paul told Timothy, we have a ten- sinful tendency to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All right? I think we all feel that, I think a lot of us at least, feel that in our heart at certain times to, to, to in practice. Even though we may not say it in words, we feel the impulse in our hearts to love pleasure more than God. Um, or 1 Timothy Six, Paul told Timothy that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Jesus in this parable, though, um, in, in describing this son like this, does us a real kindness um, in, in, in seeing through, in, through this story, helping us to see through the deceptiveness of sin in our hearts. The deception is this: that all, all that glitters is not gold. All that glitters is not gold. That everything your heart lusts after will not deliver what you think it's promising to deliver. Um, what what is it that Brother Al used to say so often? He always he didn't come up with this, but he said it a lot. That the way he said it was, sin will always take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that may sound quippy. It may sound preachery. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, make you, cost you more than you want to pay. That may sound quippy, but it ain't wrong. It ain't wrong. That's just a different way of saying What is the consistent testimony of Scripture all throughout the Scriptures, but especially in the Proverbs? Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. All that glitters is not gold, though. Its end is the way to death. Right? Or think about Proverbs 9, verses 13 to 18. Just listen to the the word picture it's painting. The woman folly And bread eaten, eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. I mean, proverb says folly is loud, folly is seductive, folly is in your face. Folly is sitting at the door, not sitting in the house, sitting at the door. Sitting in the high place, sitting in the highest place in town, the most, mis- most visible, the most traffic place in town. That's where she's going to be. Calling out to those who are simply trying to walk the straight way. She's going to call out. You don't go looking for temptation. Temptation comes looking for you. Offering what really, the, the Proverbs say, offering what really appears sweet and pleasant, pleasure for a moment. But like Proverbs 20, verse 17 says, at first it tastes sweet, but in the end it turns to gravel in your mouth. And the younger son found this out. In verse 14, he spent everything, and then something that to him, to him was unforeseen, because sin makes you stupid, um, he did all that and a famine hit. And so he went from extravagance to, in verse 15, hiring himself out to, as a servant, and not just to any, not just any servant to any boss, but he was a Jew now working for a Gentile in a foreign country, and now doing a job that was actually forbidden by Jewish law. He was a pig farmer, a Jew being a pig farmer. And not just that, but the sin brought him into, into such depths and such despair that he even wished to eat the slop the pigs were eating that nobody would give him even that. The, the 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 shame of the shame of high-handed um, sin, high-handed sin, intentional sin, intentional rebellion against God, selfish rebellion, really. That the the kind that we see in this parable, uh, the shame of it is seen in a couple of ways, and you need to hear this. Because everybody's going to be tempted to, to high handed sin more times than you're going to want. The shame is that it's found in a couple of ways. One is the collateral damage of selfish rebellion, the collateral damage of it. What he was saying and what he was doing to his father. Whether he realized it or not, it's just the utter respect. Basically saying, "I wish you were dead." What do you, what do you think that did to his father when he did that? And then what he was doing to his brother and the other servants by just abandoning his job on the on the farm and going and going away. Sin is never private. It's never private. That that's actually part of the gravel in your mouth. Like when you come to your senses by God's grace. Part of the shame of that high-handed sin is you see how many other people were affected by it. How many other people were hurt by what you did. Um, but the other shame of high-handed sin and rebellion is just the unexpected consequences for yourself in that rebellion. In addition to the collateral damage, just think about the depths that it plunged him into. Think about the depths that that plunged him into. That, think about this prodigal son. That's not at all how he thought it was going to work out. That's not even almost how he saw it going for himself. And when you're tempted, it is never worth it. Like, but by God's by God's grace, in this parable, the young son begins coming to his senses. In verse seventeen, it says he came to himself. And, and what did that look like in verse seventeen? verse 17 he says how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough and i perish here with hunger what coming to his senses first looked like was misery just seeing his misery true true repentance is always going to bring a measure of misery with it but that's a good sign that you see your sin for what it is but then in verse 18 he plans out what he's going to say to his father when his father when he returns home to his father he he first says, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's the first thing he's going to say. I've sinned against heaven and before you. So that's a good sign. He understands that his sin is first and foremost against God and also against his Father. It's our, we sin against God, but it always involves other people too. But then he continues. Here's what I'm going to say. He's going to say in verse 19, okay, I'm going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. But then he says, he's, he plans to say, treat me as one of your hired servants. And this is another place where it's hard to fully say the error of what he's saying in that sentence without referring to the father, saying something about the father. So let's let's transition from the younger son now to the father. Uh where the story kind of of its own now turns. So the younger prodigal son, as we just saw, decides to go home, and he decides what he would say, which he does say again in verse 21. But before we get there, look with me all the way back in verse 12. We're thinking about the father now. And it's in verse 12 that the son just asked the father for his share of the inheritance, uh, as we saw moment ago was the son essentially telling his father I wish you were dead and not part of my life anymore what does the text say about the father when he did that when he asked for that it simply says at the end of verse 12 and he divided his property between them that's all it says I think in that in that simple little sentence in response to him saying give me my give me give me what I want That alone teaches the fathers in this parable, representing God, his patience, his long-suffering, his mercy, his mercy with us despite our utter rebellion and despising him by our attitudes, by our greater love for lesser things, our actions. But now take that simple statement in verse 12 that he divided his property, giving the portion to the younger son, knowing full well what he was going to do with it, Take that idea that he gave him what he wanted, take that and combine it with verse 20 when it says, and he, the younger son, arose and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Let's pause right there for a second. We need to consider just right there what that teaches you about the father. The, the, the younger son was still a long way off and the father saw him. Like, it, it ha- that has to mean that the father was standing there actively looking in the direction that he knew the son was going to come for- from in which he expected the son. If he didn't expect the son to come back, why would he be standing there waiting on him? He did expect the son to come back, which tells me if he was standing there, looking in the direction that the son's going to come from, so, looking so intently that when the son is still far off, he sees him coming, that tells me that the father was in control of this whole situation from the get-go. I gave you the money, and now I'm just waiting for you to come back. The father was in control of this whole situation the whole time. The fa- why? Because the father could... He could foresee the consequences of what that guy was going to do. He could foresee the consequences that the younger son would encounter before the the son ever left with the money. But he let him go anyway. Because he knew that the only way this son would ever see his rebellion for what it is was to let him experience the ruinous end of it for himself. And the father knew the whole time that his son would come back. It was the plan all along. And that's how God often is with us. Like, the old confessions of faith put it this way. You just, just bear with the older language. And I've read this to you before, but it bears hearing again and again. The, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave us for a season he, he leaves for a season his own children to manifold temptations and to the corruption of their own hearts. Why would God do that? Why, does, why would the most wise, gracious, and holy God, why would he ever leave his children for a season? Well, it tells us why in the confession. One, to chastise them for past sins. Two, two, to reveal to them the hidden strength of the corruption of their own heart 3 that they would be humbled 4 that he might raise them to a closer and more constant dependence upon himself in the future and 5 to make them more watchful against their own sin in the future in other words when we're when we are tempted to leave god for a season then he often according to our Experience and perception of them also leaves us for a season and lets us go our own way for all those wise and holy and gracious reasons. But look again at, at, at verse 20. When, he saw the, when the father saw his son coming, he felt compassion. Only God. And it says he ran. Dudes, older dudes, didn't run then. Like, that's, that would have been unusual. In fact, it would have been kind of faux pas. It would have been like socially wrong in that day. Because in that day, in that time, it, it would certainly have been wrong for a man of higher standing to run to the aid or the help or the whatever for somebody in a lower standing. The higher running to the lower it would have brought the 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 man ridicule in the community for doing something like that right but he didn't care about that he the father embraces the ridicule that could have brought that's this that's just jesus is foreshadowing his own cross there jesus would embrace the ridicule of the world so that the father could meet us with compassion and embrace when we turn unworthy to him now, at this point, I want to bring up something that I brought up earlier. Remember when I said the, what the young, younger son was planning to say? He was planning. That was back in verse 18 and 19. And the last thing he planned to say, because remember he says, he planned to say, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he planned to say, treat me as one of your hired servants. And what I want to say about that now that I didn't say then, is that statement doesn't fully understand repentance. Um, And it doesn't understand repentance because it doesn't fully understand the grace and the forgiveness of the Father either. Because at that point, that statement, treat me like one of your hired servants, that statement sounds like he sees repentance as a debt he needs to work off. But look at what happens, and we often all think like that sometimes, too. Like we feel like we, we might fall into a... We may not actively think it, but we act like it. Like, I've got I've to perform to act, earn God's favor. No, we don't. Look at what happens in verse 21. The father lets the son say what he had planned to say. He, he says, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. All true. But just before the son can get that last line out about treat me like one of your servants so I can work off my debt to you as if he could, the father interrupts him. The father interrupts him to throw a party for him. What kind of party? A party with all the extravagance that the son had earlier tried to enjoy through his rebellion. The father now joyfully gives it back to him freely, at this time just without sin. Jesus talks this way too. Don't lay up treasure here. Lay up treasure in heaven, where there's much rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. Extravagance. Best robe. Ring on his hand. What does that mean? He's in the family. You know? uh, Shoes on his feet. What does that mean? He's not a slave. He's not a servant. He's a son. Fattened calf. Food for the whole community eating and celebrating it's a happy day right psalm 16:11 you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore the father was teaching the son here not to trade everlasting joy for temporal pleasure that only brings death and sorrow that's the simple but eternally true message but this brings us quickly to the reply of the older son Think about with that with me for just a second before we close. Bless you. So when the celebration is going on, somebody goes and tells the older brother, I just think it's curious, by the way, that everybody else was there, but he wasn't there. And I just got to think, was he being serious when he was like, hey, servant, what's going on over there? Was he serious? How did everybody else know but he didn't know? Anyway... Verse 28 says, when he found out what was going on, verse 28 says, he was angry and refused to go in. You know, what would have happened if he did go in? Bless you, did somebody else sneeze? Golly, quit, guys. Um, What would have happened when the older brother would have gone in? Well, by custom, older brother comes into the party. All of a sudden, he's the MC. He's the MC. he's the master of ceremonies, he's the guy that's got to serve the guest, and he's the guy that has to lead the whole celebration for the, for the brother. And he wasn't about to do any of that. Now, at this point, I want, to, I want you to notice something about the father in verse 28. At the very end of verse 28. What does the father do at the very end of verse 28? It says, his father came out and entreated him. What am I? What am I? Why am I drawing attention to that? Because right there, that shows you the father treated both sons the same. He treated both. He went out to both of them. The only re, and the only way the only difference was the son was coming from further away, but the father was there and went out to the son when the older brother wouldn't come in. The father went out to him. But where the where one son was seeking the welcome of his father, the other wasn't. Jared C. Wilson said about this parable, perhaps the most important thing we ought to say about the parable of the lost son is that it is much more about the older brother than the younger. Jesus' subversive teaching is, in effect, who exactly is lost now? And you see this more clearly as the parable continues. Notice verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you. He doesn't even address his father as father. He says, look, He doesn't even address his father as, Father, look at how I have served you, and I have never disobeyed any of your command. I don't fully buy that, but we'll just take that right now. I have never disobeyed any of your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. If the younger son saw repentance as a debt to be paid off, the older son didn't see grace as grace but what was owed to him. The the younger son saw himself as being in debt to the father. The the, The older son saw the father as being in debt to him. Jared Wilson went on to say, the extended point is more about the older brother's legalism than the younger brother's hedonism. We are spared the details of the son's rebellion, but not of his brother's resentment. And that's true because the older son did not finished. When he says in verse 30, but when this son of yours came, well, he doesn't acknowledge his brother either, this son of yours. He doesn't acknowledge his father. He doesn't acknowledge his brother And then he slanders both of them. When this son of yours devoured your property with prostitutes. Now that may have been true. Maybe he spent money on prostitutes in that foreign land to which he went. But we're certainly not told it. And how in the world would the older brother have known? He wasn't there. He hadn't even talked to his brother since he got back. So he slanders his younger brother by saying that kind of thing about him. Then he slanders the character of his father when instead of rejoicing, he indicts his father for killing the fattened calf. You shouldn't have done that. The older son cannot conceive how that is right. He cannot cannot imagine how it is right that his father would do that for that son. Why can he not conceive of that? Because he cannot conceive of how we can receive any that how, how how what we re- he, all he can think of is we receive what we receive from God is what we earn like he has no concept of grace and that 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 also seems to be because he neither understands his father in the sense that his father represents the holiness of God here or his sin because he he can actually say he never disobeyed a command which if yeah, really? But you act—you act, you would have to at the very least water down your understanding of sin to say you don't have any of it. Interesting, that's the last word. That's the last word we hear from the the older brother. And Jesus sort of, he, t- he just tells that, and then the, then the parable just kind of ends. There's not even like a formal conclusion to the parable. What we're left with is this. The father tried to make the older son see that all that the older son has is not because of what the older son had done. Thank you for always obeying my command. But that's not why you have what you have. You have what you have because you're my son. But he mistook his role as being a slave. And the father tries to help the older son see how all he has is by the father's goodness and generosity quite apart from any of his works. And this is no different than for the son, the younger son, who returned to him in repentance. This parable told a story about about two sons. Two sons who were separated from the father because both were blind. Both were blind. One was blind by his sin and rebellion. The other was blind because of his self-righteousness. And none, none are so blind as those who will not see, do not want to see. Both needed to return to the Father. Both were prodigal in a sense. And the Father went out to both of them. And he received the one who saw his sin and repented. Both sons might be in this room tonight. You know? Because Jesus is telling this parable to us as much as he was to the scribes and the Pharisees. Both both sons might be here tonight, but... This parable teaches us that the Father's willing to receive both if we're willing to forsake our ways and come to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for grace, Lord, thank you that um, thank you that, that, that both sons are here. Thank you that, that uh, there are many many prodigals here tonight, Lord, I know in my life I've been a prodigal. I know that in my life, um I have walked down roads I should not have walked down. I have I have sinned with a high hand. There's so many of us in the room.